Well, good morning. Welcome. It's good to be here with all of you in the dark. I don't know. Um, it's hot outside. This is, we're saving energy. Um, I wanted to update you all. Just last Thursday, uh, we held our resource fair that we've been talking about for the community out here on the front lawn. You may have um, gone by and seen all the tents, and I just wanted to let you know it was fantastic. Um, it was so good to be engaged with so many community partners and then families from our community. Um, the, the gifts of uh, cleaning supplies that we were able to give out were just so welcomed and appreciated. There was so much gratitude and just um, joy in it, and it was fantastic. And I'm so thankful for everybody that served and everybody that gave and just, again, this feeling, this sense of, of um, engagement in our community with our neighbors. Um, I, I wish you could have all seen it. I think you would have loved it as well, but I appreciate your participation in that. Also wanted to remind you that next Sunday we will, uh, Lord willing, be outdoors for our baptism service. Um, we've got um, three or four people getting baptized next Sunday. It's going to be a great morning, so bring a lawn chair or a blanket. We're going to be out there, we'll celebrate baptism as a part of the service, and then following the service, immediately afterwards, we're going to set up some grills out on the front lawn and have hot dogs and just eat lunch together. And so, um, if you don't want a hot dog, you can pack a lunch or bring something with you, a picnic. But we're just going to hang out and be together again in this season, as we talk about this summer, as a season of of reconnect. And then again, speaking of baptism. We do have a class tomorrow night, 7 p.m. right here, and so if you have been thinking about that, even if you haven't signed up, that's okay. You can come, uh, learn more about it. Uh, we'll talk you through that. If that's something that you're interested in, uh, we'd love to share more information with you. And then lastly, uh, VBS is now just a couple weeks away. Um, our kids are getting excited. Our families are getting excited. The theme this year is focus. So this is going to be June 26th through July 1st. It's going to be a fantastic week together. I know they're busy recruiting volunteers for that as well. So if you have the availability to serve at that, we'd love to have you participate with us in, in that as well. So there's more information about VBS at chapelstreet.church slash VBS. So make sure you check that out. Our, our kiddos are looking forward to that as well. I, uh, when I was a high school student, my, um, expertise did not land in the area of English and grammar and literature. That was not the class like that I looked forward to um, going to every week. In fact, if you've read my emails, you probably are aware of, of some of those shortcomings. Actually, I, we have a pretty thorough proofreading process now, but um, they could tell you some stories. And, and I... Uh, but I had a, an English teacher, a junior English teacher by the name of Mr. Kurtz. And he was one of those teachers, and you probably, you probably had somebody like this, I hope you did, who was so passionate about his subject matter that even though it wasn't the thing that you were necessarily passionate about, you kind of you became more passionate about it. Like he, he, he would just get so excited to unpack some piece of literature or to teach you some grammar rule or all this stuff that I could feel myself even in the midst of that thinking like I don't normally care about this stuff but I feel like I should you know like because of his enthusiasm and I remember that one of the fundamental principles that he taught us about reading literature for understanding 
was looking for repetition. He would say all the time, repetition is the key to understanding. If you want to understand, if you want insight into why this author wrote this, what, what the significance is, what he wants to communicate, he said, look for, for repetition. And then fast forward um, four or five years, I'm a student at Moody, I'm, I'm learning to study God's word and, and how to teach that. And again, in hermeneutics class, the fundamental principle is you look into God's word when you're seeking to understand. One of the principles is that is to look for repetition. And so whether it's in literature, in God's word, or even if it's just in a conversation that I am having with my teenage daughters, right? Repetition is often a key to understanding what's primary. What is, what is of first importance? Why has the author taken the time and the energy to write this? Peter, in, in this second letter that we have to the church, has a teaching that he believes is vital, that, that is essential. It's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for them as they seek to live their faith out in Jesus. As they seek to endure genuine persecution, as, as a people following the way of Jesus. And so, in order to help make sure that they get it, that we get it, Peter oftentimes repeats himself. In fact, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And maybe uh, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, some of this might sound familiar to you. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter today. This is what Peter writes. He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This, this tone, this message... In, in these 10 verses, Peter has been repeating and hammering on this and saying this over and over and over again in this letter. And there are a couple ways that we could approach this text today. Certainly, we could talk again about this, this 
ministry, we could re-emphasize this call to remind each other. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, the importance of speaking these reminders and our role as brothers and sisters in Jesus and doing that for each other. Peter uh, states overtly that this is one of his purposes in writing. He says, I've written these letters, both of them, as reminders. We could talk about the nature of, of false teaching. We could talk about this, this idea that's infiltrating the church, and we'll get into this a bit. We could talk more about the idea of the day of the Lord and how this is a theme that runs throughout the entire story of Scripture. We could talk about, about living our lives in view of a day when God is going to reward the faithful and restore the earth and, and evil is going to be punished and judged. We could live our lives in view of that and certainly Peter has this in mind as he writes. But for our, our, our time together today, I really want to focus on, on two elements of, of Peter's message here. And we'll dig into some of this stuff as well. But as I've been processing this passage, something emerged to me and I I've been thinking of it this way, is Peter, in these 10 verses, I think I saw something here that's something for us, something about us, and then something about God. So let's talk first about something about us. Look again what Peter writes in verse 1. He says this, he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written them both as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So, Notice the goal that Peter states here. He identifies these letters. He says he's written them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Other English versions translate that as a sincere mind or pure minds, untainted minds, genuine understanding. It's actually a, a phrase that was commonly used in Greek philosophy of the time. So Peter is actually borrowing something from these Greek philosophers, and he's using it in order to communicate a biblical truth. Because the Greek literally here means judged by the sunlight, seen with accuracy and clarity. It literally means having a right understanding. So my, my brother-in-law and I, um, he was helping me like, fix up some dings on my car. Like he, he in high school and uh, college kind of worked on, did body work on the side. And, and so he was helping me do some stuff. And we were just, this is not like, he did it professionally. I just like learning these things. And so we were in his driveway working on my car. And, and, and he told me the way to understand what this repair would be is that he said, this will get you to where it looks good from 10, 10 feet away at 10 o'clock at night. Um, <laughs> And I was like, I can live with that, you know? <laughs> this is not what, but what Peter's talking about here. This, this phrase literally means to be brought into the light, to be seen with clarity and accuracy. This is the sort of thinking that he wants us to have. So Peter understands this idea of wholesome thinking in our, in our, to be key in our spiritual formation. And what's interesting about this is this is, Peter's addressing this long before anyone was dealing with the distractions of, of modern technology, right? I have been um, researching partly just for personal interest 
But I've, I've been kind of in this kick where I've been researching the implications of the digital world on our spiritual formation. And it is fascinating and terrifying. Uh, documentaries like The Social Dilemma have exposed um, the manner in which our technology, our devices, they are literally designed to keep our attention. In fact, according to one research, the average U.S. adult spends about three hours and 43 minutes per day on their mobile device. So if we were to calculate that over the course of the week, that's a little over 26 hours, about 26 hours and 15 minutes. So we spend the equivalent of a part-time job looking at our phones. What's interesting about that as well is that the average time spent on a website that we would look at on our phones is about eight seconds. So we're constantly flipping from one thing to the next. We live in this world where data and information and entertainment are kindly, uh, constantly coming at us, vying for our attention and our mental energy. And we move from one thing to the next. And I would contend and I'm learning this for myself, that, that this is wreaking havoc on our spiritual formation. In fact, as one author put it, he said, attention, or to use Peter's words, wholesome thinking precedes adoration. To Peter's point, what captures our thoughts captures our hearts. And we live and we engage and we interact out of that. So think again about how Peter started this second letter. This is back in chapter 1. He writes this. This is verse 3. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. He's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Throughout this letter, Peter is offering us a trajectory for our understanding of spiritual formation. And so in, in, in Peter's logic, he's saying, okay, it starts with truth. It has to start at the point of truth. Look at what Peter says in the very next verse back in chapter 3. This is verse 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is how you, in Peter's view, this is how you identify, this is how you avoid false teaching. It's, it's by being engrossed, aware, uh, informed by the prophets. It's being aware and studying and living in the teaching and the life of Jesus. So the prophets being a the Old Testament, this looking forward to when Jesus would come, then the Gospels that, that show us and give us the life and story of Jesus that record his teaching. And then through the apostles, the, these letters that we study that show us those who were there with Jesus leaving for us what it looks like to live out our life, our call as a follower of him. He says it starts there. He's, in his argument, his logic, if we don't start from an accurate source, then we can end up anywhere. And he says this is what's facing the church. And then this, this truth that we start from, this informs our thinking. 
Right? If, we, if we see the message of Jesus clearly and accurately, if it gets our attention, if we use uh, the Apostle Paul's verbiage, then it begins to renew our minds. It reshapes the way I think about myself, about you. Reshapes the way I think about purpose and identity, my calling in this world. It reshapes the way I think away from, again, using Paul's language, the patterns of this world to this new way of thinking, this kingdom of God way of thinking. As we understand what it looks like to have life in Christ. So for Peter, when he's giving us this, he's talking more than, um, than mental assent. Right? This is more than just cognitive recognition. It's more than uh, getting the answer right on the test. When Peter is giving this to the church, he's talking about his understanding of wholesome thinking means that there's this ability to discern spiritual truth and to apply it. James and other New Testament authors talk about this as wisdom. And then, of course, wholesome thinking, right thinking, leads to action. This is spiritual formation, the culmination, the result of, of spiritual uh, thinking, wholesome thinking in our lives. The end result of spiritual formation is what Peter calls godly living. It's acting on what we know to be true and in line with the person and work of Jesus. So here's the thing. Peter knows that this is the only way that the church can remain faithful. This is, this is the only way that they're going to be able to endure persecution. And if, if not, they are and we are susceptible to, to every idea, the allure of every false teaching that comes along. And this is exactly why Peter writes. This is why he repeats himself. And then he goes on back in verse 3 now. And we read this a couple weeks ago, but let's look again. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So he's, he's referencing a, the, the flood, a previous experience of, of the day of the Lord. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. That, that's, um, he, now Peter's evoking this sense of both judgment and refinement. And being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And again, Peter we hear this with our modern ears and if you're anything like me there's a bit of like a, a recoil like could is there a nicer way to say that right like but that's not that's not peter's objective he's not worried about hurting our feelings he wants us to understand what is true he, he's far more concerned about understanding the implications of what is true in our life than he is about us reacting a little bit to a reality, to something that is coming. And we've spent time talking about this over the last couple of weeks, and I don't want to 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. If you weren't here last week when Pastor Andrew taught in the, in the week previous to that, we unpacked this in more detail, and you can go back and, and listen to those sermons. But the only thing that I, I want to add here is that I think this makes sense. I mean, and by that I mean, I think that oftentimes um, false teaching, alternative options, if we can think of it that way, those emerge in the life of the church as a way out. They emerge when something is really difficult and hard, and let's be clear, things for this church were really hard. And so people start to, to say, hey, you know what, if, if, if we dial it back a little bit, if, if their faith in Jesus and living this, living in the way of Jesus is the reason that they're dealing with this persecution, it, it makes sense that somebody says, hey, if we, if we just simmer down a little bit here, then maybe we can avoid all this. And it's not as if there's going to be some day when Jesus comes back again. It's not, there's, there's not as if there's going to be some day when there's this final and ultimate judgment. We're going to be held accountable. So let's just, let's just blend in a little bit. As I was thinking about this this week, it, it, it makes sense why this would gain some traction in the church. But the problem from Peter's view is that it's not true. And this is, I think, a checkpoint for each of us when we talk about, we think about how we apply God's word in our lives. Am I believing it? Is, is, my, is my interpretation of God's word, am I believing it because it's making my life easier? Is it providing for me a way out or because it's, I'm convicted that this is true? I think for each of us, in the life of the church right now, we have to ask ourselves those questions. So Peter begins by, by unpacking something about us, but then he moves on and he shows us something about God. Something about God. I, uh, how many of you have had the experience where you've scheduled a repair person or like the cable person to come and do something at your house and you've waited and waited and waited all day. I, I will leave this company unnamed, but I scheduled like I took a half day off work. I'm going to be there. And as that time window like came and went, like I was literally standing at the front window, just like waiting for the van to pull up. And I look like, looked at Sherry and I said, I don't think they're coming, you know? And I think most of us, we, you, you can kind of conjure up that feeling, like that sense of frustration and annoyance and like, and even the, is it true? Wait, were they ever going to come? Now, imagine applying that, like, as it relates to this promise that Jesus is going to return. Like, imagine that, what it feels like on something as insignificant as an appliance repair person or the cable guy showing up at your house. Imagine living in this anticipation under intense persecution, hoping that today is the day that Jesus is going to intervene in history and that he is going to set everything right. And at the end of the day, you're still staring out at the window and saying, I wonder if he's ever going to come. See, I think Peter here, in, in, as he moves through this text, I think he is shifting in the last half of this away from addressing these false teachers 
and two, addressing those who are experiencing some really honest doubt. Because in their mind, their view, he's saying, if, if I were setting things up, he's saying, this seems like a perfect time for him to come. This seems like a perfect time for him to show up on the scene and to reward the faithful and to defeat evil. And so Peter, as he speaks into this honest doubt, he does so by reminding them of who God is. Again, in verse 8, Peter says it this way. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. That, that uh, other translations say beloved, which I love that, the way Peter talks to the church. He says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He says there's two things about God that we need to understand. First, we need to understand that God is eternal. That he is the one who is eternal. Or in other words, Peter is saying to the church, God isn't like us. I, I find the eternality of God to be one of those things about him that is is so compelling and so confusing at the same time. It's the challenge that we face as human beings, as finite beings, in understanding and thinking about one who is infinite. Right? In that, by very definition, we are limited. So again, Peter here, he, his point is to reframe our thinking and our perspective. So let, let's play this out just a bit. He says to God, a thousand years is as one day. So if, if we were to put that in some context, Abraham, uh, who lived some 4,000 years ago, who God started the, the covenant people with, if we were to think about that, that would be about Monday. Okay? King David, who showed up, a thousand years later than Abraham would have been on the scene about Tuesday. Jesus, who was 2,000 years ago, would about Wednesday. Uh, the, the printing press that was invented in 1440, where the Bible first began to have circulation and to become more and more available, that would have been about Thursday afternoon, and by Friday, we are all gone. Right? Like, Peter is reframing our thinking. An 80-year lifespan... And this, and this view is, is about two hours. And a four-year presidential term is five minutes. Like the things that we spend so much time and energy and get so invested in and worked up about and all these sorts of things, Peter is reframing. It's saying in the view of God, in the eyes of him who is eternal, there's a whole different perspective. And he's reminding us of that. And then notice how he, he flips it on its head as well. And he says, and a thousand years is like a day. That same 80-year lifespan that's two hours would be 25 million years in that view. See, the, Peter's point is to remind us that God exists outside of time, or said conversely, time exists inside of God. We, we have this tendency as human beings to see our lives and our circumstances and even our sort of scope of history. 
and we think of it, even though we understand it's not true, we think of it as about the totality of all that there is. Peter's saying God is beyond all of that. He isn't confined to our, our limited perspective, and his timing is always perfect. And it's difficult to wrap our heads around, it, but it is immensely comforting. If, if you want to read more on the eternal nature of God, pick up A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. There's a whole chapter that he does on, on God being one who is eternal. And it's one of those things that it's like you have to read it like 12 times to even start to capture what he's talking about and the significance of it. But then he also says, not only is God eternal, but he's patient. He's the one who's patient. I, I literally, as a middle school student, I mentioned to you that English wasn't my strong suit. And along with that, uh, spelling wasn't exactly something I thrived at. And I, I literally can picture sitting in my sixth grade class with an sp impending spelling test and earnestly praying for the return of Jesus <laughs> to escape what was about to happen, right? Like, and, and thinking like, Lord, I'm good with you. Now seems like a great time, right? Like, but again, like, as, as silly as that is, think about how stupid that is. Because at no point in time did it ever, as, as much as I might have been thinking that I had placed my faith in Jesus and that I didn't want to do this spelling test, it never occurred to me the person sitting next to me might not have placed their faith in Jesus. That, that they might be dreading the idea of this being the moment that the Lord returned. And I wanted him to show up so I didn't have to fail something, you know? Look at I just find this so fascinating here because look at how Peter identifies the recipient of God's patience back in verse 9. He says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We are the ones that he is patient with. God's long-suffering patience is his grace applied to time. It's his desire that each of us would place our faith in him, that we would trust Jesus, that we would come to a place of repentance and discover the life that he offers us. And this isn't just about going to heaven when we die. This is about his desire to transform our lives, to, to usher us into his kingdom and to use us as kingdom agents right here and right now. So Peter, in the midst of, of everything they're facing, to the doubt that they're asking themselves, he points them to the eternality of God alongside of God's redemptive patience. Because although you and I have a beginning, unlike God, our souls will exist for eternity. And it is his desire and it's his gift to us that we would experience eternity in his presence. At the end of this, this section of, of the letter, Peter brings it back. He brings it back to, to the reality, the truth of the day of the Lord. Again, in verse 10, he says this. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. So this is that refinement. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He's saying, don't, don't make the mistake. God is eternal. He is patient. But there will be a day. And he instructs the church. He's saying, don't lose sight. He will come again. And so in the meantime, church, we set our minds on him. We seek to live in the way of Jesus so that more and more people, so that, that, that the Holy Spirit will shape us to be men and women who more closely resemble him and that more and more people around us will know our gracious and patient God. And so this morning, I want to I usher us into the Lord's table together. And I think it's so compelling that when, when Jesus was at the last table with his disciples and he stood in that moment with them, he took bread and he broke it and he said, I am doing this as a reminder for you. We've been talking a lot about the importance of, of the ministry of reminding, the significance of that and what that means. God has given us something tangible that, that we celebrate, that we participate in regularly in order to remind us that he is the one who is good, that he is eternal. And so when Jesus was with those disciples in the upper room that night, he took bread, and if you're new with us, um, you can, this cellophane layer on top pulls back and it reveals the wafer. And he took this bread with his disciples and he said, this is my body that I will give for you. As you take this bread, be reminded of the eternal, patient God who because of his redemptive purposes sent his son to sacrifice himself on a cross. This is the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. He took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my promise. Be reminded of this promise. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Thank you, Jesus, for your table. Thank you for knowing that we would need to be reminded. Thank you for your patience, that you don't see time the way we do. Because it's your desire that each of us would come into a knowledge of a relationship with you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.